Hello everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. So today we have a show that I'm really excited about doing because I've been contemplating this idea for a while, and then certain events in the news have brought it to a forefront. And today we're going to talk about wildlife trafficking. And for those that are animal lovers like myself and my guest today, it's a topic that's close to our hearts, but it can be a topic that's close to everyone's hearts because who doesn't love animals? I mean, come on. So I'm really happy to have Alex Olesker on the show today. And first of all, thank you for coming on the show to speak on this topic, Alex. Thank you for inviting me, Chelsea. I uh, love every opportunity I can get to sort of preach the counter wildlife trafficking gospel. Well, Alex, for our listeners, is a research associate at Defense Group Incorporated's Center for Intelligent Research and Analysis. He is also a graduate student at American University School of International Service, and he's worked on counter wildlife trafficking for academia, the government, NGOs, and also the private sector. So he's got a lot of experience in this topic, and we're looking forward to hearing his thoughts. But just as a little disclaimer, just know that his thoughts are solely his thoughts on this topic. You don't represent any of the organizations, universities, or companies that we've just mentioned. So now that we've got that out of the way, Alex, um, once again, thank you for being on the show. And oh, great to be here. Why don't you start off with telling our listeners how you would define wildlife trafficking? So I think the best and most relevant definition is the one from the July 2013 executive order, the White House executive order, establishing uh, the Presidential Task Force on Counter-Wildlife Trafficking, which is a cabinet-level task force that is now uh, answering to the National Security Advisor and coming up with the United States Counter-Wildlife Trafficking uh, Strategy and Implementation Plan. And uh, it's simply, uh, quote, uh, the poaching of protected species and the illegal trade in wildlife and their, their derivative parts and products. Um, And it's important to focus on all of these aspects. So in one example, um, in uh, the, usually the international trade of bears is illegal, and that's both live bears and their paws, as well as bear products such as uh, bear gallbladder bile from wild cop bears. So all of that would fall into wildlife trafficking. And... How is it similar or different to, say, other forms of trafficking? We have drug drug trafficking, human trafficking. Yeah, humans and animals are different in their own right, but they're both alive. So let's look at this. Well, I think that they're similar in actually most ways, because a lot of times, uh, especially when we are looking at the professionals, not just the people, you know, catching a specimen on their off time, uh, this is just a commodity that they're moving. Um, And in that way, you have both organized crime and just sort of crime that's organized. So yes, to ship something from Southeast Asia uh, to Europe or from Africa to China, it'll take a few people, it'll take some sort of organization, but not all of this is um, sort of grand, the godfather, type organized crime, just like with drug trafficking and often just like with uh, human trafficking. Um, Some of the models that we see in regular uh, or more conventional, I suppose, 
transnational crime we see here, which is sort of um, a bow tie structure where there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of people poaching, let's say, and a lot of retailers selling the finished products, but fewer people in the middle. That's not always the case, but that's something that pops up a lot. Um, you know, whether it's the drug trade, the arms trade, or the wildlife trade. Um, and you also have a huge range of crimes here, which, again, in a lot of uh, black markets, you see that as well. So you have things that are obviously illegal, um, such as right now, uh, uh, rhino horn. It's very hard to find cases where you can legally trade in rhino horn than they exist. Um, and then you also have, of course, the legal wildlife trade, and you have a lot of gray zones, uh, and I think actually the uh, Cecil the Lion case demonstrates that because hunting lions in Zimbabwe can be perfectly legal if you have the right permits. Uh, in this case, it looks like the right permits were not acquired or what are the rules were there were bent in uh, this case. And that's why it's become a trafficking case um, where I would say they're different is that you have a limited supply of these protected and endangered species. So extinction is forever, at least until we manage to clone mammoths. And um, you can't just manufacture more wildlife. And oftentimes, especially because there's a premium on wild caught, uh, you can't just always breed more, especially not to meet demand. So um, if supply... Uh, doesn't meet demand for, let's say, methamphetamine, you make more methamphetamine. If supply doesn't meet demand uh, for ivory because we're running out of elephants, that's the end of elephants. And uh, another interesting way in which I would say that wildlife trafficking is a little bit different from human trafficking and drug trafficking and arms trafficking is that we're in the really early stage of research and crafting effective policy. So a lot of the questions that we've been addressing uh, with drug trafficking, with human trafficking, with arms trafficking, we're seeing them pop up again in wildlife trafficking and trying to see whether the solutions that we've applied for those problems will work in wildlife trafficking while also trying to avoid the pitfalls. And why do you think that we're in an earlier stage of researching this topic as opposed to, like you said, drug trafficking, human trafficking? Is it just this idea that animals are not our top priority, but maybe now they're slowly becoming the in thing to research and to try to protect because now we have a lot of species that are going extinct? Uh, I mean, absolutely. I think that is a big factor. Uh, I sort of think of my time looking at counter wildlife trafficking as before the executive order and after. Because before, you know, I'd be introduced into a room, oh, there's Alex, he wants to save the Beatles or something. Um, and afterwards, things really started to change <clears throat> rapidly. And the way I got involved myself was not as a conservationist, just like you said, everyone loves animals. You know, if you have a cell, you love animals. Uh, but I was looking at much more conventional crime, and I was finding these wildlife connections. And that was really eye-opening for me, because... I saw there's this huge story here that I didn't see many people really telling or exploring, especially once you move beyond ivory and rhino horn. It was things like 
the Russian mafia and caviar and, um, you know, uh, reptiles in Southeast Asia. Uh, seeing all these parallels, I, I started to notice there was a lot there. And uh, very fortunately, I think other people are starting to come to that conclusion, um, especially once the executive order came out. But some of it is this market is just becoming more and more valuable. So looking at the prices of some of these products, um, rhino horn and ivory, I think are the first that come to mind. They've, they've shot through the roof in recent years, as has demand. Uh, so as just a market that can fund all sorts of illicit activities, I think it's become much more prominent, at least in certain uh, high-profile cases. And you mentioned rhino horn and ivory. So an article I read while researching for this talked about how in the criminal world, ivory has become a currency. And I was wondering if we could look at this a bit, because as you said, ivory is a huge, rare commodity. It's mm-hmm. illegal in a lot of places, and the trade of it is illegal, but it's still a highly valuable mm-hmm. product, and it's still getting traded and moved across borders. So ivory isn't unique here, of course. So we, we've heard about uh, drugs and arms and blood diamonds being used as a commodity. Um, and even in terms of wildlife products, ivory isn't unique. Uh, there are a lot of stories in Latin America of sea turtle eggs being traded for uh, narcotics or also being used as means of laundering or as an alternate commodity. And you do hear about this sometimes, but ivory is a really good one because uh, demand is high. Uh, it's very valuable, especially per, uh, per pound. And uh, it is starting uh, to be used to be traded as a commodity. And um, some of the big cases that you hear uh, regarding ivory as a commodity is uh, with the LRA, with the Lord's Resistance Army. And you have some deserters talking about uh, things like trading ivory for medicine or trading ivory for as much as uh, 18,000 bullets. Um, but really what you have is a high-value good that usually is fairly low risk uh, to deal in. Uh, when we talk about the ivory trade, however, it's important to remember that we're largely dealing in estimates so we don't even have a precise number for how many elephants there are in Africa. I've heard figures as low as 200,000 to 300,000 something. And we also don't have a great idea of how many elephants are getting poached. Right now, the most consistent figures being thrown out there are 300 to about 35, uh, sorry, 30,000 to about uh, 35,000. But some of the best figures we have on uh, elephant poaching is through a program, uh, I think through CITES, uh, the Convention for International Trade in Endangered Species of Flora and Fauna, uh, called Monitoring in Illegal Killing of Elephants, Mike, and their uh, percentage of illegally killed elephants, Pike, which just in these monitoring sites uh, says how many elephants, dead elephants, are found to have died of natural causes versus through human intervention or legal causes. And since they've started to monitor uh, the pike percentages, they've gone up from about 0.4 in 2002 uh, across uh, across the continent of Africa to about 0.8 in 2013, which is well above uh, sustainable levels. 
So that's where a lot of the estimates we have on the trade come from, as well as some seizure data and some uh, anecdotes or testimonies. Who are the major buyers of ivory? What countries are demanding this product or valuing this product for different artistic elements, uh, medicinal? I know there's a lot of different forms that a lot of these poached items are used for. So who are the major buyers of, let's say, ivory in this case? Uh, So with ivory, everyone talks about China, and for good reason, uh, because China is, we're pretty sure, the largest market. Uh, And interestingly enough, China is the only country where household consumption correlates closely to uh, the illegal killing of elephants. So as soon as household consumption rose, uh, it rose in a manner that mirrored the illegal killing of elephants. And part of that is the traditional uh, medicine aspect, but a big part of it is just China's size. Uh, I was trying to find the figure and I couldn't find it again, but um, someone did some math that if only the households in China that make more than $16,000 a year, which is a number of times uh, greater than the average household income. Uh, If only 10% of those households bought a tiny one-ounce ivory trinket, we'd be out of elephants uh, very quickly, I think, in just a few years. Uh, So it's not that ivory is so widely accepted there, though the laws are or at least have been much more lax within China. Um, It's just that we're talking about such a massive market. But everyone sort of knows about China. What a lot of people don't realize is that the United States is the second largest market for ivory. Now, that's both legal and illegal ivory, and it's very hard to separate the two, but that's sort of the point. It's a pretty permeable membrane. A lot of illegal ivory is laundered as legal ivory as antiques or uh, as mammoth ivory, and it's also pretty simple for uh, previously legal ivory to become illegal if you can no longer prove that it was acquired legally uh, and before the ban on international trade in 1989. Um, so I think it's not helpful to always be pointing a finger at countries like China, and it's much more productive to say this is a problem we have or we all have. And so far, that's been what's working rather than entirely trying to shame um, China or Thailand or uh, other big market states. It was interesting to find out while reading articles on this topic that a lot of auction houses, most likely unbeknownst to them, are encouraging the sale of ivory um, because a lot of it, like you said, is chucked off as legal, even though it's illegal. And they're helping this illicit trade, in a sense. Um, yeah, so auction houses, at least all the big ones, do have people whose job it is to do due diligence. Um, but usually, it's fairly hard to tell, and you just don't always have someone um, who's an expert who can do all the research. And until recently, until the new... Um, ivory ban went into effect, the burden of proof was really on enforcement authorities versus sellers to show that the ivory was not legal versus for the seller to show, hey, I have all the paperwork. This ivory is absolutely legal. It's an antique, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But 
in the case of ivory and so many wildlife products, others even more so, um, it's just that enforcement capacity lags behind sort of the value of these goods. And you just can't have someone, let's say DNA testing um, a bunch of products to see if they really are the species um, that the seller says they are, or uh, if it's an antique or not, trying to trace the paperwork. Uh, so auction houses uh, do try, um, and I think now it's gotten much easier for them. But there is a real problem, uh, not just with ivory, but uh, I was just recently reading about a case of uh, sea turtle shells in uh, being trafficked through an art gallery in uh, the Napa Valley uh, that, that deals with fine arts and antiques. Um, it's a pretty common problem. I think that uh, one of the biggest problems in enforcing uh, wildlife trafficking laws is the laundering issue, especially for some of that gray area, uh, what is often called CITES Appendix 2. You have CITES Appendix 1, which are the species where international trade is universally banned for all the signatories of CITES, and that's most countries. And then you have Appendix 2, where you might be able to trade captive bread, but how do you prove it's captive bread? Or, um, you know, trade up to a certain quota, etc. And, you know, that's sort of the less sexy story, um, but that's where a lot of the criminality can be found. And that's the interesting thing about wildlife trafficking. A lot of the instances of proving something is either a, say, antique ivory or captive bred versus wild. Mm-hmm. I mean, the lines to define if it's a legal or illegal item, I'm putting item in air quotes because these are animals a lot of the time mm-hmm. or products of animals, mm-hmm. but the lines are very gray and it's hard to define. So how does that make cases and and showing illegal activity, um, how does it work? Because it's so unclear and so undefined. Uh, Well, I think that's almost the central problem here, um, is that you really do have to often go the extra mile to close these cases and to uh, really prove, you know, that you had a permit for this, uh, for, for fishing this amount of that fish and or that you didn't. Uh, and unless you have some of the very strong laws that have been recently going in place, like the recent ivory ban, uh, it's a real challenge. Um, that's why you see uh, fish and wildlife in the United States doing sometimes these multi-year undercover investigations uh, that might end in a few years imprisonment or a fine. But you really do have to catch people red-handed. What helps, however, is that uh, usually operational security is uh, very low on the criminal side. And that was one of the things that sort of drew me to this field was that there was so many low-hanging fruits because people know that they're not going to be pursued as hard as if they were dealing in drugs or people or arms. And they know that usually enforcement is so underfunded, uh, scattered, often very corrupt, uh, that you just don't necessarily have to come up with all these ingenious methods uh, to hide your trade. And this was very interesting because some of these people are linked with 
organizations dealing in other crimes. So uh, you have, let's say, people still moving large shipments of drugs and being extremely careful there, and then just throwing a bunch of uh, sea turtles or total alba swim bladders in the trunk of their car and hoping no one recognizes them, all in the same network. And do you think right there the fact that the punishment, I guess we could say, for these crimes is so loose and maybe not as strict as it possibly could be, that that right there encourages more wildlife trafficking and poaching? I think uh, that's sort of overwhelmingly what we find is that it's less um, that people are poaching because you know, someone always wanted to deal in rhino horn, it's just a low risk, high reward activity. And as long as the rewards are so high and the risks are so low, it's going to be a huge black market. And part of the problem in the enforcement response is uh, lately, as this is becoming more of a hot button issue, people are starting to crack down or at least show that they're cracking down but we're not always getting this enforcement response right. So a lot of times, um, let's say in South Africa, they they keep catching these poachers, these guys really on the bottom level, the the equivalent of coroner boys, basically in the drug trade, and hitting them with these draconian sentences. Uh, but the kingpins, uh, time and time again, they they either never see a day in court. They their high priced lawyers get them off, or it never even reaches them. Uh, not not to mention the guys overseas who are really making the big bucks. Uh, and a lot of times this knee-jerk response can even do more harm than good. So uh, in one case in uh, Tanzania, because they're such an epicenter for poaching and at the same time so reliant on the safari triade and ecotourism, uh, in October 2013, I think it was to respond to this poaching crisis, they uh, implemented, uh, I think it was called Operation Exterminate, which where rangers were given the order to shoot to kill on site, basically shoot first, ask questions later for anyone suspected to be a poacher. And that policy made it about a month into a litany of extrajudicials, murders, rapes, extortions, tortures, um, caused a huge corruption scandal going all the way to the top. A lot of people uh, lost their jobs. I don't know how those cases uh, ended if many people saw jail time, but basically it was that uh, there was so much corruption uh, already that those enforcement mechanisms weren't being affected combined with uh, a lot of people have this impression that, you know, that the problem in range states is just that rangers aren't well-armed enough or that we're not being aggressive enough. And sometimes that happens. But a lot of times uh, you hear about stories of rangers patrolling with rocket-propelled grenades. It's not uh, a problem necessarily that they're not blowing enough stuff up. Uh, It's that we haven't adapted to meet the transnational and the organized crime elements of this threat. And you're talking about the rangers, and if you look on this topic on the internet and start looking at pictures, yes, I'm going to admit some of them are really gruesome, so small disclaimer there, but 
when you see pictures of rangers at different parks that are there to protect these animals in these sanctuaries, mm -hmm. and unfortunately poachers are going into and killing mm -hmm. critters, um, a lot of the poachers, or sorry, a lot of the rangers are pretty well equipped, as you were mentioning, mm -hmm. rocket grenade, rocket launchers and so forth. Um, but some of them look like they really do have pretty good ammunition on their side, but it's almost like there's just too much space to cover for too little people on this on this uh, project, unfortunately. Right. And it is a very dangerous job. There are a lot of stories Absolutely. that you also read about rangers getting killed from poachers that come just as well armed and equipped. So this is not an easy job. It's not a job that you're going to come home always in one piece, unfortunately. Right. 1,000 uh, rangers have been killed in the last decade. And see, that's amazing for a non... Here in the West, we think of a park right. ranger as someone that's, you know, telling yeah. campers where to go and so forth. Mm -hmm. But this is, like, actually almost a war zone for them. Absolutely. Sometimes it um, is literally uh, a war zone. When you have, um, you know, especially I think Central Africa is a big... Uh, example of this where you have a lot of rebel groups and insurgent groups really operating often from parks and seeking refuge there and of course the uh both the quality of the ranges and their equipment varies tremendously uh, across parks across teams across countries but i think uh pretty consistently you nailed it with uh, space being an issue i remember uh speaking once with um some folks who were going to apply satellite imaging or um, to, to tracking uh, poachers and saying, hey, you know, we'll be able to see you know, jeeps approaching these herds of elephants and the response from, from people who worked in the parks were, okay, so we see a jeep approaching some elephants and our closest ranger is three hours away because keep in mind, these parks are massive. Um, all, all you're going to do is have a ranger find a dead elephant sooner. So sometimes it's just a massive uh, logistical challenge to sort of play these cat and mouse games in huge reserves um, of areas that are really um, loosely controlled, easy to hide in, and sometimes full of some really bad actors. I found it interesting looking at some of the stories on rangers and also armies in various countries and especially looking at the areas where the Lord's Resistant Army is highly involved in smuggling. And there were some stories of young men that had been kidnapped when they were either teenagers or preteens and of course taken into the Lord's Resistance Army, um, trained as fighters and so forth. But some of them had escaped and they were joining either ranger groups or as I said, armies to actually combat people from the Lord's Resistance armies doing the same thing that they might have been doing when they were part of that organization. What are your thoughts on this? So a few parks and uh, I think countries have implemented these poacher to protector programs, which I think are just great and have been highly effective. And usually the way that it works is uh, at the very low level, we, we talk about how valuable ivory is, how valuable rhino horn is, and all of these uh, wildlife products. But the people, you, you also hear of stories of people trading 
um, ivory tusks for bags of salt um, at that low level. So a lot of the, you know, the impoverished folks who do turn to poaching, they're not making a killing off this at all. Uh, and uh, they find that they make a better salary working with the parks, either in a general position or some of them do move uh, on to be rangers. And part of the deal is that you have to reveal everything you know about the poaching networks that you worked with. Usually that provides a tremendous amount of intelligence of actually actionable and useful intelligence. And as well, these folks know the trails, they know the parks and a lot of them, you do hear some interviews that seem very heartfelt. Really their, their heart wasn't into poaching. They, you know, they tell some story of, um, you know, an expected family tragedy and they just needed $200 now. And that was the, the one night they went out and that night they got caught. Now that could all be baloney, but um, so far these programs have been highly effective. And some of these former poachers have turned out to be extremely effective rangers. Now at the same time, there's always a problem of corruption uh, among rangers. So that's a factor as well. But I, I do think that um, there's a lot of promise in trying to, reach the people who either could become poachers or have become poachers and trying to work with them rather than always against them. And you mentioned a couple of countries in this discussion Mm -hmm. on um, major players in the poaching game, but what would you say is the ground zero of poaching? Um, Well, that's a little hard to say. Uh, I mean, depends poaching of what. Uh, If we're talking about uh, ivory, which uh, we've been speaking about for a while now, um, the in terms of where does most illegal ivory come from or where does more of it come from than any other country, most people would say that is uh, Tanzania. Uh, in terms of where are poaching rates highest, most people would say Central Africa. All of that is based on estimates, uh, unfortunately, Um, So that's one of the areas that we just don't necessarily know enough about. And some of what we learn here comes from some really innovative techniques such as DNA testing, which has been able to pinpoint um, within, I think, a few dozen kilometers uh, where ivory came from, which has yielded some surprising results. Uh, But... When we look at the, again, Pike, the percentage of illegally killed elephants for various uh, regions, consistently Central Africa is the highest, um, almost always. However, because there are just so many elephants in, you know, in, in Tanzania and in Kenya and some of the Eastern African countries, we also see a lot of poaching there. But of course, you know, rhinos are typically poached in South Africa because that's where most rhinos are. And, um, you know, uh, different animals uh, in different places, unless the species really only does live in one country or one area, um, it's all based on educated guesswork. And that's one of the areas that we do have to learn more about to tackle this problem. So looking at the bigger picture, and you did allude to this just a little bit ago, how is the poaching issue, say, in African nations, a governance issue? 
Uh, I think that governance is a huge uh, part of this, uh, both in that poaching creates a lot of corruption uh, and also it's enabled by a lot of corruption. Um, And that's not just uh, the case with African nations. Um, I can't think of a single nation I've looked at, including in the West, where corruption wasn't a major driver of uh, the illegal wildlife trade because it's fairly easy to pass yourself off um, as a legitimate business person, as a conservationist even. Um, A lot of these people pass themselves off as conservation officials or uh, maybe breeders trying to conserve conserve a uh, certain species um, and at the same time you have so much money changing hands especially as it moves up in higher levels uh, that one of the big reasons for example the UN is getting so concerned is because it leads to a lot of bribery a lot of greased palms a lot of uh, loss in faith in regulatory bodies and in uh, enforcement officials. And, of course, that's always a difficult problem to solve, especially because um, I don't think there's any place that's entirely free of corruption. But I know that um, working with some of the NGOs that try to get law enforcement involved, that's always a big concern for them all over the world. And I've had people tell me, Um, You know, it's not hard to find out who's doing the poaching. It's not hard to find out who's doing the trading. What's hard is to get someone to take action. And time and time again, you hear of, let's say, some NGOs giving a tip-off to local law enforcement, who then raids a certain shipment or a stash. And when it makes the newspaper, you only hear about, you know, if it's, let's say, eight tusks, three horns... Um, and a satchel of lion bones, you hear about, you know, two tusks and a satchel of lion bones. Well, what happened to the rhino horn? What happened to the uh, other tusks? And only, I think it was yesterday, that a uh, fairly senior uh, local Vietnamese uh, law enforcement official was indicted and, I think, arrested for running the same sort of schemes, reselling uh, wildlife seizures. So that really makes it a thorny issue, especially when you need so much cooperation uh, between countries, between law enforcement agencies, between NGOs and law enforcement. You have this governance issue, this corruption issue, and just even getting governing bodies to take action. So something that personally I always wonder about is with the ivory tusks and when different law enforcement officials find huge containers full of ivory tusks that have been shipped to a certain country or something like that a lot of times we see on the news that the tusks are destroyed which mm-hmm. yes they're a commodity uh, you know not well they're a commodity and a prized item, but then on the other hand, you think all of these elephants have already died for this. Why destroy this item that is beautiful? Yes, it's illegal, but it is beautiful. The deed is already done. 
what's the purpose of destroying the ivory once it's been found, as opposed to using it in a way but making it a non-illegal use? Mm-hmm. So this is a contentious issue, um, even yeah, among people interested in conservation, but most conservationists, and I would consider myself among them, are very much in favor of uh, the ivory crushes going on now and destroying the seized ivory. And uh, there are a number of reasons for that. And for this, I sort of have to put on my grad student hat all of a sudden and say that I think the biggest one is it is a question of signaling. So what a lot of people don't know is that after the international ban in 1989, uh, the ivory trade just plummeted and elephant numbers were recovering. And, uh, you know, so the, the, the pike percentages uh, across Africa were around 0.4 from 2002 to 2006. And 0.4 is still too much, right? We want it, we want it down to zero. Uh, but it was, it was still uh, at a somewhat sustainable level where you had more and more elephants. And only right around 2007 did it start to shoot up. And several things happened around that time. Uh, there was an increase in demand, but at the same time, there were these one-off sales of these massive ivory stockpiles. Uh, so tons and tons of ivory that were saved. And the argument went that, well, now there's not as much of a trade. Why don't we turn this into something productive? You know, make these millions of dollars that go to some impoverished uh, range countries, maybe even for conservation. Um, but then suddenly you had a massive amount of legal ivory hit the market, which creates this enormous laundering opportunity, one, and revives demand. It's a vanity item. No one needs ivory. Um, so right now, a lot of people are hanging on, or a lot of countries, I should say, really, but individuals as well are hanging on to these ivory stockpiles, waiting and pushing for another one-off sale. Um, the other problem is that these stockpiles often get, uh, you know, things are stolen. We hear about that all the time. Uh, even rumors of... Uh, some of the finer tusks being stolen before, uh, before some of it is crushed or burned. Um, so when countries, when governments destroy their stockpile, uh, they're sending a costly signal that they will not legalize ivory ever again. Because otherwise, they're just destroying millions and millions of dollars of goods. And that signal reverberates. And you might ask, why does the United States destroy our stockpiles? We're pretty good at, you know, making sure that no one steals from these stockpiles. We more or less keep them under control. As soon as the United States had a massive ivory crush recently, I think six tons, China went and went up to us slightly. I think it was 6.1, 6.2 tons. But again, what I mentioned earlier, rather than pointing the finger, say, hey, we have a problem and we get a better response there. And then countries all over the world started crushing their stockpiles as well. So that's another way of signaling uh, that you're taking action, getting other countries to also take action. That makes complete sense after you describe it that way. Another thing that I'd like to talk about is Cecil the Lion. And you have referred mm-hmm. to him earlier in the talk. And 
it is something that's in a way brought this topic to the forefront, <laughs> although it's different than poaching or wildlife trafficking. This is the killing of a beloved 13 year old lion. Mm -hmm. But how does this play into the bigger picture of say the term wildlife trafficking poaching? Because in a sense it is poaching, but not for a valued item. It's, it's poaching for the lion's head because there are um, accounts that his head was cut off by the hunter who paid mm -hmm. a lot of money to kill this this beloved lion mm -hmm. so how does this play into the whole debate and the whole category of wildlife trafficking well i think it's a really interesting case um and a lot of initial reports have been getting it sort of wrong or a lot of the people reading them so it is not necessarily illegal to hunt a lion a lot of people don't know that, but you can hunt most things if you pay a very large sum of money. And that money typically goes back to conservation. That's how it's justified. And there's some uh, there's some division in the conservation community about whether that, again, creates laundering opportunities and uh, increases demand or whether that's the only way conservation is going to get significant amounts of funding. Uh, what did make uh, Cecil, a case of poaching and trafficking, which at least in the official language of the um, Zimbabwean government it is, was exactly how he was killed, where he was killed, whether that lined up with the permits, etc. Now, when I read this, to me what struck me is the only reason we know that what happened was illegal was that one, they just killed the most famous lion outside of a Disney movie, and two, he happened to have a GPS collar uh, around him, which, of course, most lines don't. Um, so my first thought is imagine how many similar cases of not permitted hunts or not properly permitted hunts are uh, occurring with lines that you've never heard of or lines that we don't have as good of an idea of where they are. And again, this brings up this huge gray area. Um, going back to rhinos, there was a big case I mean, yes, there, there are always these big cases of quote-unquote pseudo-hunts where um, Asian organized crime would set up sort of fake hunters to hunt the rhino again. They could take the head back, and they would just discard the head and take the horn. And they were actually running a triangle trade with uh, trafficked women who would be registered as hunters. When they really weren't hunters, it would just be to get the paperwork through. Uh, leave them in South Africa where they did the hunt and uh, make some money that way and then bring the uh, rhino horn back. And we see that in a lot of even less, uh, again, sort of dramatic or fuzzy and adorable cases. Um, I was really shocked to find how much laundering goes on in the reptile skin trade. Um a lot of the reptiles used in the skin trade cannot legally be sold if they're wild caught. Uh, so you have these massive shipments of captive bred, you know, snake skins, lizard skins, and all of that. But it just takes the slightest bit of digging in a lot of these cases to find out they weren't captive bred at all. For example, it costs more to uh, captively breed and feed and house that animal than the skin's going for. And that's the first indication. Uh, or 
you know, these farms don't really exist and things like that. But it's extremely hard to find those illegal elements in a massive, uh, otherwise legal trade. So that gray area, I think, is one of the biggest challenges in counter wildlife trafficking. Looking at the thought of trade, I want to take this conversation towards an element of trade that's making it a lot easier for sellers to sell illegal parts of animals, live animals, etc. And that's the internet. How does the internet play into all of this? And let's look at this black market of trade for endangered species that the internet is really facilitating. Mm-hmm. I think just as with all um, all trade and all illegal trade, the internet has been a tremendous tool um, for connecting buyers and sellers or even just hobbyists with questions. Um, and you see that in wildlife. And wildlife is particularly easy to trade illegally on the internet because that basic due diligence, not a lot of people are going to be willing to do. So, um, you know, a lot of times I would find people selling blatantly illegal uh, products and the only sort of operational security they felt was necessary was to do it in a language other than English because they realized that authorities in their home country won't really care. Um, otherwise, just basic code words uh, that keep evolving and that makes it very tough. So you can say whenever, um, you know, that for a long time, a lot of ivory would be sold as oxbone. Um, and you could say, hey, if anyone's selling oxbone for these absurd prices, that's ivory. Okay, well, then you change the code word. And someone needs to find that. Someone needs to tell enforcement officials. Enforcement officials need to take action. They might need a subpoena or do uh, whatever similar legal process uh, is necessary in uh, the country in question. And it's much easier for some of these sellers to uh, stay ahead of enforcement on the internet and really reap the benefits there. And that said, recently we've been seeing uh, some of these big vendor sites, especially some of the big Chinese vendor sites, get much more serious about keeping illegal wildlife products off of their websites. So I think there's some, there is some hope uh, but right now there is a substantial amount of illegal wildlife trade right out there on the open internet. How do some of these big, bigger sellers like say eBay, um, Etsy, I heard is another website used for selling illegal items of animal origin, Alibaba, etc. How do they step up to the plate or even not step up to the plate? in combating this in their sites being used for these illegal sales? Uh, I think some of it actually echoes, in my mind, harassment issues on uh, websites like Twitter. Uh, so you see in this whole spate of, um, of harassment and on Twitter and on Facebook, initially the response was, you know, sort of, oh, we see you have a concern, you know, the sort of boilerplate, uh, response from HQ, and in some cases they've gotten more serious, and in other cases they haven't. And you would initially see the same thing on some of these big sellers. You know, oh, your concern is noted. We'll check it out, but by then it's too late, or no one really checks anything out. 
Um, unfortunately, a lot of what it takes is man hours right now. Um, some of it's being provided by these bigger sellers, but a lot of it comes from the NGO community who's sort of doing this out of love of wildlife and putting in hundreds of, of sort of hours of researchers looking through all these postings, finding new code words, trying to find sellers. Um, and I've been interested somewhat in my own research on ways to help speed that process up and automate it. But for now, a lot of it is really just a question of people who care a lot, putting in a lot of time and being just a little bit more clever, a little bit more careful than the sellers. And sometimes the big markets are on board with that and they help. Other times they're more of a hindrance. As a seller, per se, I would say the larger question here for them would be OPSEC in the mm -hmm. sense of how do they smuggle and hide large items like ivory, fur, live animals, live reptiles? I mean, that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Well, I can give a few cool answers, but I'd have to first preface that with a lot of the times we don't really know. Okay. I don't find seizures to be terribly indicative of uh, the illegal trade simply because, you know, it's sort of like uh, all criminals are dumb. No, only the dumb ones get caught. Uh, seizures don't always represent uh, the size of the trade um, or the methods used. Uh, that said, um, some just because of the volume of things moving overseas, people and shipments, uh, it's pretty easy to sort of bury this stuff. So you look at a tiny percentage of shipping containers being checked, um, you know, less than 1%. Putting this stuff in shipping containers is often fairly effective, and it's not always easy to detect illegal wildlife products, especially because that takes a lot of training. Um, it's one thing to say, well, that is an elephant tusk, but... Um, you know, doing market surveys, I can't always tell uh, if a turtle or even a fragment of turtle shell is from one highly protected, highly endangered species or its, you know, perfectly legal cousin. Um, and of course, all of the techniques used to hide things like drugs and arms when, when the shipments do become valuable come into play. Also, traffickers seem to learn pretty quickly what more lax airports and transit countries are. Um, some countries have a pretty good record of catching traffickers, or at least they generate a fair number of seizures. Others we only know are big transit countries because they end up being countries of origin for shipments. So we might know that, for example, um, a good amount of rhino horn passes through uh, the UAE, but it's never been caught there. Um, and they're, they're adaptive. I think that, as is the case often in organized crime, uh, the traffickers can usually adapt a little bit faster than law enforcement. And also, lastly, as I've sort of mentioned, when enforcement efforts are weak, it really doesn't take that much operational security and that much ingenuity. And, you know, I would often hear of um, seizures, let's say even of, of ivory tusks. How, how do you find them? 
while he had so many ivory tusks in his suitcase that one of them literally burst out. Okay. Yeah, you caught that guy. How many guys didn't you catch? Very interesting. It sounds like it's unfortunately a field that is very hard to monitor and to unfortunately stop, which is sad. But I, we're getting, and, and I don't want to, you know, be a total pessimist. And I think that pessimism is one of the other sort of blights of the field. We're getting better, but it takes a lot of training. And there are a lot of organizations, both governmental organizations and non-governmental organizations that are going around and either funding inspectors or sniffing dogs or training customs officials. Uh, but it really, you know, in often cases we're starting from nothing and have a tremendous road ahead of us here. So on that note, and to conclude the conversation, maybe you could let us know a little bit more of the methods used to stop illegal trafficking and the killing and the trade of these endangered animals and you know what types of methods are also available to help catch these traffickers or should I call them even killers because that's mm. a lot of the time what they are mm. um well i think that a lot of the most effective methods have sort of yet to be discovered I think it's very exciting in that way that we are learning, um, often reinventing the wheel on effective counter-network and counter-trafficking techniques that have been used elsewhere. Because for a very long time, uh, the people doing the groundbreaking work here, and really it's amazing work, they're trained as zoologists and biologists. Having worked with a few of these NGOs, a lot of them uh, had maybe one person or no people on staff from a law enforcement background. And the research, uh, I've just recently started speaking to criminologists who started applying criminology to counter wildlife trafficking and finding some really groundbreaking uh, techniques and trends. Um, but I would say ultimately, if we need a solution, a long-term solution, that's going to come from reducing demand. Uh, I don't think you can arrest your way out of this problem uh, or, you know, do a prohibition regime that's airtight. But while you're working on demand, and a lot of great work is being done on demand, including in countries such as China, uh, the analogy that I use from my defense background is of combined arms, right? More effective together, right? Your artillery, your air force, your infantry, your armor, all of that, more effective together than uh, each piece individually. So you need to secure those parks, and a lot of that... Um, involves implementing sometimes some some of the solutions implemented are very high tech very cutting edge others are very simple so poachers to protectors that's a very simple uh technique of just almost community relations at the same time you have people using drones very effectively just to see further and uh to cover more ground and also to put rangers in less danger so that they can see the poachers before the poachers see them, especially in areas where poachers are incredibly well-armed and dangerous. Um, I think where you really see results and uh, where we have a lot of work to do is targeting those middlemen. So as I mentioned earlier, you have this sort of bow tie of a lot of poachers and you can always find more. You'll always find um, some other poor kid or, you know, someone with nothing to do, or some petty criminal, a lot of these people 
Um, some of the more famous ones are car thieves and smugglers or, uh, you know, corrupt enforcement officials, uh, things of that nature. There are more than enough of them. Uh, and at the other end, you have more than enough retailers, the equivalent of the corner dealer. The people who connect those two, they become more and more scarce and more and more valuable in the middle. And that's uh, been a popular technique uh, for counter-trafficking in other fields that I think we're starting to apply, and I'd like to see more in counter-wildlife trafficking. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Alex, and giving us your thoughts and fantastic insight on this topic. And hopefully, as you said, um, more and more research will be done in this field and more and more positive results will come from it. Yeah, and, you know, if I were to leave you with a few messages, uh, it would be as depressing as this talk might have been. Uh, I think one of the most important things is not to give up hope. And with issues like this, you hear a lot of sort of defeatism, like, oh, well, that's it for elephants. That's it for rhinos. No more tigers. We can't afford that attitude. Um, and there are some success stories. Uh, the way rhinos recovered. So uh, white rhinos had been declared extinct in the past. Uh, now there are something like 20,000 of them. Their population was recovering brilliantly up until the last few years. Um, elephants too, after the ban. Um, I really believe that if we put our minds to this, we can see a lot more success stories and we can't just say this is a difficult problem. We don't have a solution. Uh, and also, I think it's important not to forget about some of those, you know, CITES Appendix 2 animals, some of the ones that might not be as adorable or even as rare, but are also critically important and uh, very lucrative just because of the numbers involved. So, you know, not everyone is Cecil the Lion. Sometimes you have to care about the Toke Gecko or, uh, you know, the Totoabo, which is this enormous fish uh, near Mexico. Those are also very important species uh, that generate a lot of money for, for bad folks and that we need to protect. And those are very, very wise words to end our show with today. So once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me.